I like your question of when do you think you first made a donation? I'm not sure that I know. I remember doing like fundraisers at times growing up. I remember our school had a big jogathon that we started participating, that we all had to participate in that I assume was a fundraiser for the school. <laughs> um, yeah. We did have to walk a big circle around the school when I was in maybe first grade to raise money for probably the school. I think the first time I made a donation, like, intentionally, <laughs> where I actually chose the charity it went to, was... I was definitely giving away some money, like, randomly in college. But starting my junior year of college, I actually had, like, jobs during college. Mm-hmm. And so I started giving away, I guess, 10% of that income starting from junior year of college. And at the time, I was giving to Oxfam because that's what Peter Singer said to give to. All right. So (laughs) let's get started. (laughs) Where should I donate is an important question, and Givel exists to help people answer this question. GiveWell is a nonprofit that researches charities and recommends top charities to donors who are interested in having as big of an impact as possible with their donations. Welcome to the GiveWell Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about what GiveWell is, what we do, and how we choose our top charity recommendations. I'm Sean Conley, a research analyst here at GiveWell. I'm here with Outreach Associate Catherine Hollander. Hello. And uh, Howie Lempel, who's been working at GiveWell since 2013. Hi. All right, Kat, so uh, what are we going to cover today? Uh, so we are going to talk about how GiveWell began, um, what its mission is, and um, how we choose the charities we recommend, and then why we're so transparent, or why we care a lot about transparency. Great. So why don't we start at the top? What is GiveWell's purpose? So GiveWell, uh, as you mentioned, it's trying to answer this question of where should I donate? So GiveWell is a nonprofit um, dedicated to finding outstanding giving opportunities and then publishing all of our analyses um, to help donors decide where they should give. And how did it start? So GiveWell started back in 2007, um, quickly coming up on a 10-year anniversary here, um, when our two co-founders, uh, Ellie Hassenfeld and Holden Karnofsky, were working at a hedge fund. Um, they were a few years out of college and were interested in um, giving away some of their money to charity and were interested in giving to places where they would have the most impact. They you know, were thinking about their charitable giving decisions in terms of, you know, I want the most bang for the buck. Um, and how do I find that? How do I find the opportunities that will give me the most bang for the buck when I, when I give to charity? Um, and so they, along with a group of some of their coworkers, started researching charities in their spare time to try to answer this question. Uh, and what they found was that this type of information just really didn't exist. Um, so they, they uh, sort of long story short, left, left their jobs at the hedge fund uh, to found GiveWell. Um, and we've been around ever since. And so that was 2007. And how you were saying earlier that you gave to GiveWell, found GiveWell before you started working here. When, when was that? Um, so I first found out about GiveWell, I think, just about when it was started. Um, so sometime in 2007 or 2008, um, I was really obsessed in college with economics blogs. Um, and so spent <laughs> probably, uh, 
probably an inappropriate amount of my spare time reading such economics <laughs> blogs. Um, I probably would have gotten better grades in school if I had spent less time on the academic blogosphere. But anyways, the first time that GiveWell was linked to by, I think it was Marginal Revolution, was, ha- was probably how I found out about GiveWell. Um, and so I, you know, started reading GiveWell's research right about at the time that that GiveWell was founded. Were you were you an economics major? Is that right? Or... Um, yeah, it was sort of one of my multitude of majors because I was indecisive as a college <laughs> student. I think my economics professors wanted me to read more economics blogs than I was, but we both ended up here. So let's talk about the uh, transparency because I think that's a really important value to GiveWell, especially because the co-founders had this uh, problem. Our co-founders had this problem when they first started that they had a really hard time finding out about charities based on the research they could do. And so we've taken that and we publish all of the research that we do on our website for anyone to use and try to cite it as much as possible. Yeah. So GiveWell is, um, like Sean said, anyone can come to the website. The research is not behind a paywall. You don't have to pay to see it. Um, And we also aim to, it's not just that we publish, you know, write-ups of our own opinions on the charities, but we also, you know, publish pretty extensive footnotes. Um, we publish notes from conversations that we have that may or may not factor into, you know, our analysis of a particular charity, but is part of our learning about a particular area. Um, so, you know, there are a few things that this is trying to accomplish. And one is that, you know, we want our donors to have confidence that, you know, when we're making a recommendation, it's based on it's based on this research that we've done and that we've done a thorough job of researching and that our you know recommendations are grounded in, in this type of information. And then also um, that we um, want this information to be available for others to learn from sort of independently. I think another goal is just to sort of be a model of at least one possibility of what transparency can look like. So... I think something that's been kind of cool for me while I've worked at GiveWell is to have certain transparency practices that feel kind of awkward. So a lot of the time when we'll have a conversation with an expert about some topic, we'll ask them if it would be okay with them if we record the conversation and then take notes on it and post the notes publicly with their approval later on. And it's been really interesting to see how it feels kind of awkward to make asks like that, but once you do it, it turns out to sort of be much lower stakes and less of a problem than anybody expected. And there is all of this sort of information lying around that could be used by folks, um, but that, you know, people just sort of don't make accessible. So it's been nice to sort of show that some of the attempts to to be transparent are are less costly than you might have thought ahead of time. Yeah, and I think one thing along those lines, too, is that part of our transparency is having a mistakes tab on our website. So if you go to GiveWell's website and look at, you know, the main options that you can select there, um, one of them is a big list of all the mistakes that we've made that we've written about um, on our site. And I know that might seem like the type of thing that feels awkward to publish or that seems like the type of transparency that could be costly. But, um, you know, in doing outreach, I talked to a lot of people who um, support GiveWell and a lot of them actually cite the mistakes tab as a reason that they um, support our work. So it's kind of an interesting. And I think another nice thing about the mistakes tab, which isn't really 
necessarily about transparency in particular, um, but I think that there's more and more a recognition that in order to really achieve big things, you have to be willing to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So like, especially like in the Bay Area, like that's something that you hear about a lot. And so I think there's something to be said for really like displaying your mistakes almost like they're a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and if mistakes are things that we never talk about and that you only think sort of, um, you know, happen because someone really did something awful and you ought to just fix the outcome and, like, make sure nobody knows about it, then you're really not liberated to take some of the risks that I think a lot of organizations would like to do. Yeah, I agree. And and I've had a similar experience to Catherine of hearing from a lot of people how much they appreciate seeing the mistakes on our website. And it's sort of, in hindsight, it's a, now a no-brainer that we should put them up because I think to a lot of people it shows some element uh, it shows transparency and that they can trust us because we're willing to admit when things go wrong. So I think that's been a great decision for us. One of the favorite, one of my favorite things about the transparency is just how easy it is to find uh, answers to things. That if I'm talking to someone and they have a question that I don't know the answer to off the top of my head, I can just type in into Google "give well" and then the name of the thing I'm wondering about. And because everything's on our website, it often comes up. Some the page that we've done about that thing comes up, and it's it's easy to find. I think my favorite mistakes page related anecdote is the job applicant who once applied to give well and included her own mistakes page in her application on her own initiative with a list of the mistakes she had made in life and different steps she had taken to prevent the mistakes from happening again in the future. Um, so I think some of our of our fans have taken inspiration <laughs> from from the the mistakes phenomenon. Yeah, and we hope people keep doing it too. I think the more we're not just interested in transparency uh, for ourselves, but also in that other people and and charities in particular are willing to to share everything. Yeah, I think that well, this might be part of a discussion of our process a little bit down the line, but, um, you know, I think that's a really important part of our process. And I can imagine that us having a mistakes page signals to our, the charities that we're reviewing that we think this is important and that we want to know about your mistakes and that that doesn't necessarily mean that we wouldn't recommend you or that we think you're doing a bad job, but that, you know, we recognize mistakes happen and that it's important to, to talk about them and learn from them. Yeah. So let's talk about our process, which is we want to recommend top charities. We're interested in finding the donation opportunities, the charities that we think can have the highest impact per dollar donated. And so let's talk about how we do that, how we find those charities. Great. Yeah. So um, I guess how we actually might want to talk a little bit about the institutional history here, because it's changed a bit. But our our first step now is looking at academic evidence, which wasn't always the case um, for GiveWell. Yeah, so when we're looking for charities to recommend, the first thing that we do is try to find recommended interventions. And so this is... And so an intervention is a type of program in general, independent of a charity. It's like going out and digging wells or going out and giving people medicine or something. Exactly. And so because most charities just don't have the, the capacity or resources to on their own develop a huge, rigorous academic evidence base about their specific work. The place that we start, just to sort of start sorting, is to look at, you know, these interventions or these types of programs and select a few that are priorities. And the way that we do that 
is we look specifically at interventions in the developing world focused on poverty alleviation or public health. And we'll talk a little bit later about the reasons for that focus, but within that category, we find interventions that look at a glance to be particularly promising and then write up these big reports that we call intervention reports about all of the evidence on that intervention. So we try to figure out, number one, how sure are we that the program is actually having the effect that it claims to have? So for one of the interventions that we recommend is distributing bed nets in the developing world, which protect people from malaria. And so we ask, you know, how sure are we that this intervention actually reduces deaths from malaria? And then the second bit is how cost-effective is the intervention relative to other things that you can do. So if there's one type of program that might, you know, have a lot of evidence that it actually saves lives, but it costs a whole lot of money to save lives in that way, and another program where you can really do a lot of good for folks for a pretty small amount of money, um, you know, then we want to have the, the latter program on our priority intervention list. And one thing that's changed in the course of Gibble's history is that when we initially started, we assumed that charities would have this type of information. And so, um, you know, began by looking at individual charities and asking them for this type of monitoring um, and evaluation of their programs or asked for this type of, you know, specific evidence around the program efficacy and then realized eventually that this wasn't something that most charities have, is how we said, and then, you know, began approaching it from um, surveying the academic literature first before looking for programs or looking for charities implementing effective programs. Yeah. And I think that development is interesting because it turns out, like how he said, it's not just that charities are uninterested in this. It's that it can be very difficult to, mm-hmm. to create very strong evidence of effectiveness. And so we found that looking at third parties that can do academic evaluations, randomized control trials can be a better way to determine which programs work before you can think about which charity should be doing those programs. I mean, we should quickly explain randomized control trials because they are an important thing that we look at. Yeah, sure. So randomized controlled trials are a technique um, basically for evaluating the evidence for a certain program. Often it's used in the context of medical trials, and it's basically the way a way to figure out whether or not a certain intervention is actually having the impact it claims and to figure out whether or not or the size of that impact. And so what you do is you take a big group of people that are going to be in the experiment and you randomly assign half of them to get the intervention, half of them will not get the intervention, and then sometime later you can look and see if there were differences between the folks who got the intervention and the folks who did not. It's, you know, what we think of as the gold standard for research about, um, about different interventions, about especially in, in public health, but really across the board, there are certain types of interventions that you might not be able to randomize. But if it's possible, it's really the type of evidence that we'd like to see. And the, the reason for that is that if you look at 
um, evidence that doesn't come from a randomized trial. So you could look at, you know, one group of people who live in a country where, just for example, bed nets are already being distributed, and another group of people who live in a country where bed nets aren't being distributed. And you could say, well, the way to figure out how big of an effect bed nets is, or bed nets have, is by looking at the difference between those two groups. The problem there is that there are all different types of reasons why somebody might have chosen to distribute bed nets in the first country and not the latter. It might be that the first country has more of a malaria problem. It might be that the first country is much easier to work in and is wealthier and has the resources. And so unless you have that randomized element, you have to think really, really hard about whether the differences in groups that you're seeing are actually the result of the intervention that, that was performed. Right. What we're interested in is what would have happened had the intervention not been done. And that's really hard to tell when you're comparing two different countries or two different groups. Uh, even if you compare the same group over time, if you say in year one, this many people died of malaria, and then we gave them bed nets in year two, and in that year, fewer people died of malaria, it's possible that there were some sort of changes happening over time, especially a lot of uh, diseases are declining over time globally. And so you might find that uh, diseases declined, even if the bed nets did nothing. And so by having two groups that you can randomly choose to allocate, you assume the groups are the same in relevant ways, and then you can say with the nets, you can say that the group that didn't get the nets represents what would have happened to the group that got the nets had they not gotten the nets, <laughs> which is a convoluted way to put it, but hopefully it's clear by now. Yeah. So, great. So that's our... The first part of our process is looking at this independent evidence to try to find out which programs actually work. And then we uh, go look at charities to try to figure out, of the programs that we think have really strong evidence, what is the, what, which are the charities doing, which are, which charities are doing that program, and what are they doing, and uh, what can we learn about them? Yeah, and an important distinction here is that we care a lot about whether or not charities have good monitoring and evaluation, which is really different from whether or not they have evidence about the program itself that they're doing. So that's sort of an important distinction and a distinction that GiveWell, I think, didn't realize it had to make when it first got started. And so the evidence that we look at and so sort of we expect to see from potential top charities is evidence that they are actually implementing the program that they claim to be implementing um, and evidence of how costly it is for them to implement and evidence of how good of a job they're doing. So for an organization, for example, that helps to provide deworming pills to kids. Deworming pills are pills that treat intestinal worms, which are a disease that's really common in certain parts of the developing world. And so what we would expect to see from, from that charity isn't evidence that deworming pills are good or that they, um, you know, actually lead to the effects that we, that we really hope that they have. But instead, we want to see that they've recorded, you know, how many kids are actually getting the pills? Um, how expensive was it? for you to make sure that the kids got the pills? Were there any, you know, obstacles? How did you deal with them? Um, so those types of questions are monitoring and evaluation type questions that we do think that an organization 
really can do on its own, as opposed to the sort of rigorous randomized controlled trials, which are, I think, too expensive for, for a lot of organizations. Right, right. Yeah, and one, I guess one question that I get a lot is um, how we find these charities and whether charities apply to us or whether like we go out searching for them and, and what the process is like. Um, and so, you know, we typically, in the course of learning about uh, an intervention that we think we might recommend, we'll hear about a lot of the charities operating in the space and we'll sort of have a sense of which organizations we might consider um, reviewing down the line. And then we also um, can have organizations apply directly to us as well. And there's a, there's a link on our website to do that. So um, people often ask about that and it's, it's kind of a combination, but primarily like we have a sense of who's operating the space through, through doing that research that we do uh, initially. So I want to sum up a little bit of what we just talked about, uh, which is a couple of things. One is our process, which is that we start with this independent evidence because often charities don't have the evidence about their program effectiveness uh, that that's the strength that we're looking for. And then once we find great programs, we then look at look at charities and try to check that they're doing good monitoring. Uh, the other thing that we we touched on but didn't go through in detail is uh, our criteria, which are related to our process. Uh, how we mentioned some of this, which is we want to know uh, there's there's three big criteria and, and kind of a fourth. Uh, one is the evidence of effectiveness. Does the program work? Is it actually helping people? Can you point at strong evidence that it actually makes a difference in people's lives? The second is cost effectiveness. I think as Howie was pointing out, if you have a program, if you have two different programs that both have strong evidence, it seems like they really work but one is really expensive to help people and one is cheaper, then you want to do the one that's cheaper so you can have a bigger impact for every dollar you donate. Uh, and I think, a, you know, an, an example I, I've given in the past, which is a little contrived, uh, is that if you, with, uh, our best estimate is with bed nets, they reduce malaria, you can give $3,000 is our best estimate that is going to save someone's life who would have died from malaria by giving these bed nets. And if you had a... Uh, Another charity that maybe is flying people from Africa, say, to the U.S. to get surgery, it's pretty clear that that's going to save their life because the surgery is, you know, we have history of science that shows that the surgery is going to be life-saving and, and people generally die with, with whatever condition you're treating, but it's going to be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars maybe or so to, to do that. And if you're interested in doing as much good as possible, it helps to do the program that's cheaper and, and has equally strong evidence. Or, or close to a strong evidence, I guess. Uh, so the, the last the last big criteria, and one of you guys should talk about this because I've been talking for a long time, is room for more funding. So uh, I think we should touch on that. And, and what do we mean by that? Yeah, so the basic question on room for more funding is what will additional donations enable a charity to do? So we're not just interested in how a charity has spent money in the past and how cost-effective its programs have been in the past. We want to know if this charity receives additional funding, as you know we expect it would due to us recommending it, um, will they be able to implement more of their program cost effectively um, and continue to do that good cost effectively? So um, that's the room for more funding question in short, which is what will additional donations enable that charity to do? Um, and there are a couple of different reasons why an organization might not have what we call room for more funding. And so one possibility is that there's just no ability to implement more of the intervention. And so an example there is early in GiveWell's history, GiveWell 
funded and or looked into and researched an organization that, um, you know, it paid doctors to do surgeries for children in the developing world. And I think that there was some reason to believe that it was a really effective program um, that improved kids' lives a lot and that, um, you know, it was pretty, pretty cost effective. But it turned out that the organization basically was already flying in as many doctors to do the surgeries as they could, you know, find who were willing to do, to do the work. And so if we had recommended the organization and they had gotten additional funding, they wouldn't have been able to do more of the program that they had shown was, or that we believed had evidence. And instead, they would have had to move on to doing other types of work. Right. So that's the first reason why room for more funding is an important concept to us. Um, and a second reason is that, um, you know, over time, certain problems might, you know, get rarer and rarer and the world is, the world is getting better and the world is changing. So, you know, it might be the case, um, you know, for, for malaria bed nets, which is the, the intervention that we keep going back to, um, there's something called the, the bed net gap. Um, that's basically how many people are there still who need bed nets and don't have them. And so, you know, at some point, I hope there will be a world where everybody who needs a bed net actually does have a bed net. And so we always want to ask, you know, how many more people actually are in need of this intervention? And also, are the people who don't have the intervention and who need it as needy as the people, um, you know, who are in the trials that establish the evidence? So, you know, it's always possible that the folks with the, you know, worst malaria problems where you do the, the most good are the ones who already have bed nets. And so that's sort of another consideration that, that we often have to think about when we're thinking about, you know, what's going to be done with the next dollar of funding. Great. And the, I mentioned there were four criteria. The three we said are evidence of effectiveness, cost effectiveness, and room for funding. The, the fourth, which is kind of a criteria, is transparency. We're interested in charities, uh, for a lot of the reasons we talked about before, giving us as much information as possible, sharing as much information as possible uh, so that we can vet them and also put as much in on our site as we can so that other people don't need to take our word for it and can dig into the details themselves. Yep. And people often ask how time intensive this process is for charities and how long it takes us to review a charity. Um, and we typically spend, you know, hundreds of staff hours um, looking into a charity, um, writing up our report. The charity's time commitment, you know, will be talking to us on the phone regularly, sharing documents with us. Um, we'll do a site visit um, and spend some time with staff when we're in the process of recommending a charity. So um, it's definitely an intensive evaluation process to, you know, check through all of our criteria. Um, and ultimately come to a charity recommendation. But. Another question that I've often gotten from folks who donate to our charities or, or to give off followers is whether the fact that we don't recommend some particular organization mm-hmm. is sort of a negative sign about that organization. And so, um, you know, I think, number one, it, it isn't necessarily there are tons of organizations that you know, we haven't had a chance to look into. Um, and then there are also organizations that might be 
doing a lot of good that might be really good, um, you know, really effective recipients of, of donations, but who don't meet our criteria for, for specific reasons. So transparency, you know, is a, is a good one where there could be an organization that really does have excellent programs. They're, you know, they're choosing evidence-backed programs and they really are executing them well. But if they don't have, um, you know, the sort of monitoring and evaluation data that lets us see inside of the organization and understand whether or not the money is actually doing good, then, you know, that might be an organization that, that we can't recommend because they don't meet our criteria, which isn't the same as saying that, you know, that they're, that they're not doing good work. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the what which charities do we recommend? And let's just go through these quickly because I think there's a couple other things we should get through before we run out of time. Uh, so I'll go first. Uh, the Against Malaria Foundation is one of them. They do the bed nets that we keep talking about. They uh, fund distributions of them in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we also recommend two uh, charities that work on distributing uh, deworming pills, which Howie mentioned earlier. Um, they're called Deworm the World Initiative, uh, which is run by Evidence Action, um, and the other is the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative. And the fourth organization that we recommend is Give Directly, and they're an organization that gives cash grants to recipients, um, also in in Sub-Saharan Africa, and they give to you know some of the poorest people in the countries that they work in. And so one question we typically get after talking about our top charities is why do we recommend so few of them? You know, we have four top charities. Um, we also have four, we call them standout organizations um, that we, you know, don't believe are, are, we have the same sort of amount of information and confidence in as our top charities, but that we still think, you know, are excellent standout organizations. Um, but that's eight in total out of, you know, the many charities that exist in the world. Um, and so, you know, why we recommend so few. So, uh, one of the reasons is that, you know, we have this, we have this intensive process where we're only initially, you know, we're filtering down by only looking at charities that are implementing programs for which we feel there is this strong body of independent academic evidence, um, around. So that's sort of an initial filter that would, you know, narrow the pipeline of charities that we might be considering. Um, the next is this, you know, um, you know, intense process that we go through that we really want to make sure that we spend a lot of time with the charities that we do recommend. So we're interested in making recommendations for the best giving opportunities that we can find um, for donors who are interested in, you know, having as much bang for the buck in terms of life safety or improve with their donations. And we're not really interested in spending a little amount of time with many charities and feeling less confident in our recommendations of them. So what we want to do is really, you know, through this filter of, you know, looking at organizations that are implementing programs that have this strong body of evidence and organizations themselves that seem, you know, like promising candidates to meet our criteria of cost effectiveness, um, transparency and room for more funding, you know, in addition to that effectiveness, um, that sort of narrows down our list and that we're really interested in these sort of deep dives um, where we can feel really confident rather than, you know, trying to have a little bit to say about many, many charities. Yeah. And fundamentally, that's uh, mission driven too, which is this <laughs> idea that we want to find the handful of things that will give you the best bang for your buck and, and have the strongest evidence rather than having a, a menu of options. And I think another, so another uh, question that often comes out of that list of charities is why are they all international charities and, and why do we focus on international, international development charities operating in, in developing countries? 
Yeah, and the answer there is that GiveWell started off without that international focus. So when Ellie and Holden first started working at GiveWell, they looked at charities who worked on causes like U.S. Equality of Opportunity also. And at least for the types of interventions that, that we look at for GiveWell, they just sort of couldn't stand up relative, or they, the, the organizations in the developed world, um, just couldn't provide the same bang for the buck as organizations in the developing world could. And so the reason there is that if there's a way to do a ton of good for a really small amount of money in a wealthy country like the United States, there's a really good chance that somebody will have already provided that service. We have more wealth in the United States. We have a, you know, a, a relatively strong safety net. And so you're just not going to find very many people in the United States who are losing their lives because of something like their inability to afford a $10 bed net. That doesn't mean that there aren't really important problems that are still occurring in the United States, um, but a lot of them are just harder to solve and therefore, you know, cost a lot more money to, to do the same amount of good. Yeah. One other, one other thing I wanted to get back to, which we discussed a little bit. <laughs> hey, no cell phones in the recording room. Uh, which we discussed, good banter, Sean. <laughs> which we discussed a little bit, uh, a minute ago is, is what are the limitations of, of the charities and, and how you were saying how not being recommended doesn't mean that we think the charity is bad. And, and then you gave the example of monitoring data. Um, I think another example that's useful is things that are hard to measure and types of programs where it's hard to see whether they actually make a difference aren't necessarily, uh, you know, bad or, or it's not like we believe they don't make a difference. It's just that we're interested in identifying the ones where we think do we have some reason, some confidence in the program's effectiveness. Yeah, and so this is also related to the question of why GiveWell recommends so few charities. Um, and so one of the answers is that we really want to spend the time to do a deep dive on the organizations that really stand out to us as the very best. But another reason is that we do have this filter where GiveWell is specifically focused on charities in the developing world that are implementing evidence-backed interventions that are cost-effective. And, you know, as, as Sean said, there might be really good interventions that do a lot of good, but that just don't have that same level of evidence. And a good example of one type of intervention that falls into that bucket is policy advocacy. And so on the one hand, you know, if you can do a lot of good by giving, you know, a, a $10 bed net to somebody in the developing world, um, you know, who's at risk of malaria, you might think that you could do even more good by trying to convince the U.S. federal government that spends, you know, hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars on aid to, you know, increase the amount of money that it gives to aid or increase the portion of that money that goes to effective programs. And, you know, we, we could give money to organizations that, that do that kind of work, that do that, that advocacy work. But 
advocacy, unlike unlike malaria bed nets themselves, aren't the type of isn't the type of intervention where you can really get the sort of evidence of impact, the evidence of a track record going forward. Um, you know that that we'd like to see for for Giffel's purpose. Right. If the U.S. government changes how it allocates spending, it's hard to say whether that was because of some advocacy group that was lobbying them to change how they're spending their aid, or whether that was the combination of lots of factors. And exactly. so it's hard to say, if I give this group money, they will be able to keep getting more money from the U.S. government going to bed nets. And that's actually, you know, thinking about what does giving well look like if you sort of broaden your net to include these these types of activities that, that don't have the same evidence base is something that the Open Philanthropy Project which is a new project and sort of organization that that GiveWell has sort of developed and incubated is working on is working on now, and so and that's actually what I I spend most of my time working on these days is to sort of think about about that question. Yep. Maybe in a in a future episode, we might sort of go into more depth about about what that looks like. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right. So I think the last question, and tell me if I'm forgetting something, but is. How is GiveWell funded? So, you know, we were recommending money to charities and, and what type of organization is GiveWell is something people wonder a lot. Mm-hmm. So GiveWell is a nonprofit itself um, and we are funded by donors who support our work. Uh, it does not come out of a percentage of donations to recommended charities or anything like that automatically. Um, you have to specifically donate to GiveWell if you want to support our operations. Um, so we're, you know, funded independently by um donors and a few foundations who've supported us as well. Yeah, and I think this idea of you know, no fees to use our research is, is really important. The mm-hmm. research is online, people can go up and use it themselves. And uh, a number of people who have used the research for a long time give to us uh, with with part of all of their gift, uh, feeling like we're a good opportunity to leverage other people's donations. Yep. And so um, you can donate to the charities that we recommend through GiveWell's website. But again, like I said, it's not, we're not taking any percentage of that. Um, we offer that in part as a way for us to be able to track our own impact. Um, it's helpful for us to know when someone donates to a charity that we've recommended um, because that helps us know, you know, how, how much of an impact we're having with our, with our research. Um, but we're also happy if someone donates to the Against Malaria Foundation and then tells us it's because of our, our work if they donate directly. Um, that's great too. Yeah, and I think that's worth uh, mentioning again is how do we track our own impact, which is the big the big thing we do is try to uh, track the amount of money that goes to the charities we recommend, and we use that as a measure of influence of how much of an impact are we having on people's on people's giving. And we publish that on our on our website as well. We have um we uh will be soon publishing that as well uh, for the last year. Do we have any preview of what that's going to look like? I know that we've moved over a hundred million to top charities last year, uh, including Good Ventures, which is this foundation that we work closely with. Awesome. <laughs> Great. Anything else? Any other lingering thoughts or questions? No, we're happy to answer any other questions that you have as listeners. Um, we have a form on our website that we recently published um, where you can request a call with GiveWell um, or you can always email info at givewell.org if you have questions and we're happy to email or hop on the phone uh, and chat about them. And similarly, we have a open thread we put on our blog every quarter and if people ask questions there, then uh, we'll answer them in, in publicly so that everyone else can read the answers too. Yeah, so don't be shy about getting in touch because we're happy to talk. 
Great. Well, that wraps up today's discussion. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Howie. Thanks, Sean. You're welcome, Sean. (laughs) Uh, And thank you to everyone for listening. If you're interested in learning more about GiveWell, all of our research and more information about GiveWell can be found on our website, givewell.org.